0: So tonight we are in Nehemiah, and we are in chapter six. And if uh, if I had to title this message right now, I'd call it uh, I'd call it Good Guys and Bad Guys. There are always good guys, and there are always bad guys. If you read a Louis L'Amour book, and you should read Louis L'Amour. Uh, Louis L'Amour will uh, it, I, I usually read a Louis L'Amour book that's how I go to sleep at night and you say you don't read your bible before you go to sleep no no because if I do my mind will start working and I'll start asking a question and I can't go to sleep I do that in the morning um, but at night to calm down I just read Louis L'Amour because uh, they're clean stories they're westerns they, uh, there's always a good guy And there's a bad guy. And there's a girl in trouble. And the good guy's going to come, and he's going to show up. And uh, he's going to rescue her. It's all going to work out. Did you know that Tom Landry, after every cowboy football game away, win or lose, get on the team plane, win or lose, didn't matter, flying back to Dallas, he'd pull out a Louis L'Amour paperback. Because it helped him just get away from all that. Because there's a good guy, there's a bad guy. The girl's in trouble. It's all going to work out. But you know, it's true. It's, it's life. It's in the scripture. There are good guys and there are bad guys. Psalm 1. We're in Nehemiah 6, but I'm starting with Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the path of sinners <clears throat> nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates both day and night and he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water and it just goes right on down and talking about he's he bears fruit and the wicked are not so they are like chaff which will go fall away in the judgment there's two kinds of men there's the good guys and the there are bad guys. Now, what's interesting is we all start out as bad guys. But because of the grace and mercy of Christ, He pulls us to Himself. And He forgives our sin. And we are redeemed. And we are, as the old hymn says, we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our sins are forgiven. We're given eternal life. Um, and what this means is. There is always a conflict. If you're following Christ, if you're a God fearing man, we've called this study the the overall semester title, God fearing men. Um, A God fearing man is a good guy, not because of his own good works, but because of the righteousness of Christ that has been transferred into his account, as we read about in the book of Romans. This is all grace, this is all mercy. Nehemiah was a God fearing man. He uh, He was the real deal. Bernard Anderson made a statement about Nehemiah, and he said this Speaking of the book of Nehemiah, this is the only example of a continuous story of a man's career written in the style of an autobiography. That we have in the Old Testament. It is a historical record of the greatest importance, and as a narrative, it is fresh and interesting. That's, that's right. This is a, a, a biography of a God fearing man, of a good man who is going to encounter some bad guys. Now, he's already encountered them in the book, but they're coming after him in Nehemiah 6. It's true in history, it's true in movies, it's true in literature. There are good guys and there are bad guys. World War II, who was the bad guy? Hitler. Who was the good guy? Churchill. There's some other good guys, but those are the two guys that come to mind. I've always appreciated William Manchester's biographies. He's written, he wrote two on Churchill, and then he died, and another writer came and took his notes and finished out the series. But uh, in his chapter on Churchill, the chapter called Alone, 1932 to 1940, that's when Churchill was in the political wilderness and he was banished to his uh, estate just 25 miles away from downtown London from Parliament called Chartwell. That's where he was fed intelligence about Hitler by those in the government who were aware of what was going on in Germany, but the leadership was in la-la land and thinking they could make peace and there was no threat. But, you know, Churchill, as we all know, he he saw it way in advance. Good men need good friends. Because good men are gonna come under attack, and we're gonna see this in just a minute. There's, There's a section in Manchester's book about those years of exile. And nobody in Parliament wanted to get near Churchill. As Lady Astor said on a trip to Russia, she was asked by, uh, at a state dinner, by one of the R- Russian state officials about the state of things in England. And at one point he said, Well, what about Churchill? And she said, Churchill. Huh, he's finished. That was in the 1930s. In 1932, he was 58 years old. He was just getting warmed up. And the world didn't know it. Good men need good friends because they're going to come under attack. You cannot get isolated because that's how the enemy calls a man out. That's how he takes a man down. We are designed to live in a relationship. You've got to have friends. Um, so in talking about he has a section where he talks about Churchill and his friends, the guys that were for him when he was in political exile. He had a friend by the name of Bernard Baruch. Let me read this from Manchester. It'll get us into Nehemiah 6. Churchill had a fondness for Baruch. He's an American. He is Jewish. He recognizes the minutes of an aggressive Germany. This is in 1932. And Churchill is indebted to him for an extraordinary act of shrewdness and generosity. Winston had been badly hurt in the Wall Street crash of 1929. He'd basically lost everything. Had it not been for Baruch, however, it would have been much worse. He could have spent the rest of his life in debt. He is not a born gambler, speaking of Churchill, He is a born losing gambler. In New York at the time, he dropped into Baruch's office and decided to play the market. And as prices tumbled, he plunged deeper and deeper, trying to outguess the stock exchange just as he had tried to outguess roulette roulette wheels on the Riviera. In Wall Street, as in Monte Carlo, Churchill failed. At the end of the day, he confronted Baruch in tears. He was, he said, I am a ruined man. Chartwell and everything else he possessed must be sold. He would have to leave the House of Commons and enter business. This was 29. The uh, the financier greatly corrected him and gently corrected him. Churchill, he said, had actually lost nothing. Brooke had left instructions to buy every time Churchill sold and sell whenever Churchill bought. Winston had come out exactly even because he later learned Baruch even paid the commissions now that's a friend that's a friend we all need friends who don't have an agenda they're just friends and they just care that's really a model of how we're to love one another that's really a model of how we are to take care of those that we are in relationship with. In Nehemiah 6, and and by the way, we're in Nehemiah 6, but I want to jump down to Nehemiah 7 real quick because the wall's going to get built in Nehemiah 6, and the enemies of Nehemiah are doing everything they can do to stop it. But it gets done, and in Nehemiah 7, verses 1 and 2, now when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, now watch this, look at these friends. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, I put them in charge of Jerusalem, uh, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. He who walks with wise men will be wise, the scripture says. Um, The two are stronger than one. A cord of three strands, Ecclesiastes, is not easily broken. So we need these relationships. So the reason I bring all this up is that in Nehemiah 6, Nehemiah is the good guy, but he's not by himself. He's got friends, and he's going to need friends because the bad guys are coming after him. Uh, Let me just give you an outline of where we're going tonight, and then we'll work our way through this very, very practical chapter. And what Nehemiah encountered, uh, you have probably encountered in your life. If you haven't, uh, you will, because you're a follower of Christ. So Roman numeral one tonight is just simply Nehemiah's situation. Secondly, we're going to look at the scheme of subterfuge. The scheme of subterfuge. S-U-B-T-E-R-F-U-G-E. That's uh, one through four. Then we're going to look at another scheme. This is our third point. The scheme of slander. And as you'll see, this all has to do with how they're going to go after Nehemiah. That's uh, verses uh, five through really down to nine. And then our next point It's going to be another scheme, the scheme of sin. They're going to try to take Nehemiah down with this scheme, with this strategy, verses 10 through 14. And then we get to verses 15 and 16, and we're going to see, here's our fifth point, Nehemiah's success and victory. Uh, A lot happens in this chapter. So let's go to the situation, and let's read Nehemiah 6. Verse 1, now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors to the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come let us meet together at Shepharim in the plain of Ono, and they were planning to harm me. Let's just stop there. What's going on here? You remember Ono. Something will shock you and you'll go, "Oh no!" That's the best I could do on that. On that. Uh, what, what is Ono? It's a small little town 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. What the situation is in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, is that the enemies of Nehemiah, the bad guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, Gisham, however you want to pronounce it. Um, They are, these evil guys, these bad guys, are changing their tactics. From up until now, they have tried to stop the building of the wall through force. And they've said, you don't know when we're coming, you don't know when we're going to ambush you, you don't know when we're going to kill you. So as a result, the workers uh, work with, uh, as Spurgeon said, a trowel to rebuild the wall in one hand, and a sword in the other, and it, it was just a very, you know, they, they, they had to have guys on guard all through the night and even during the day. Um, they never knew when they were going to be attacked. But, but now the enemies are changing their approach from force to fraud, to fraud, because they realize this wall is pretty much done except for the gates I mean, this thing's going to happen, and their last gasp attempt is to forget the workers. They're going after Nehemiah. They're honing in on him, and they're going to take him down. You see this scheme of subterfuge. Uh, It is a deceptive strategy. Uh, The the original Latin term is comprised of two words— When you put them together, it means secretly underneath. So subterfuge means that a proposal is made on the surface, but secretly underneath is the real agenda. So what they say to Nehemiah is, in verse 2, they sent a message to me saying, come, let us meet together. Well, this is the first time this happened. They had no interest in meeting together. They were just going to try and take them down and stop them and uh, defeat the Jews in this, this whole project of rebuilding the wall. But now suddenly they want peace talks. Now they want a uh, general assembly. Now they want some type of um, talks that would enable them to discuss and negotiate. So it's a change of strategy. Come let us meet together at Shefarim in the plain of Ono. Next phrase. But they were planning to harm me. Literally, they were planning to do evil to me. Uh, Very well, we're planning to assassinate him. Get him away from Jerusalem. It's a day there. It's kind of remote. It's a day trip. It's a day back. He won't have his men. It was a setup. It was subterfuge. It, uh, It was cloaked in the right words, but the motive underneath was to destroy him. That's, uh, that's what's going on here. Now, look at his response. He knew they were trying to do evil. And look at his very diplomatic response in uh, verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I am doing an important work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? That's what he said, Uh, very calm, very measured, very direct, very true. It wasn't a volatile response. It was just, it was just calm. It was diplomatic, diplomatic language. Uh, But what a phrase, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing important work and I cannot come down. Over the years, I've had um, a few situations where People that I was uh, acquainted with, friends, would uh, who, who loved the Lord, committed to the Lord, were doing the Lord's work, would experience a situation not unlike this, where someone had an agenda against them, someone had uh, jealousy against them, someone was not pleased with how God was blessing their ministry. Um, you know, it's amazing how this can occur within the body of Christ. Jealousy can occur. Um, resentment can occur. Um, and and people begin to take devious means. Although they won't come out and say it, they kind of approach it with subterfuge. On the surface they're nice, on the surface they say the right things. But underneath, they, they got there's an agenda where there is a there is an effort. By, belief, by professing believers to undercut the ministry of someone who is having, quite frankly, more uh, success, more uh, favor, more uh, effectiveness, and they can't, they can't handle it. And so what do they do? They go after them, and they try to uh, defeat them. And they will use uh, personal attacks They'll use fraud, they'll use deception, they'll use the courts, they'll do whatever they can do with subterfuge, without coming out, they write uh, anonymous letters, they file anonymous complaints, this happens, and it's not pleasant. It happens today uh, in this cancel culture. We've never quite seen anything quite like what we're in right now if if uh there's no room for uh civil discourse, there's no room for discussion, and if you do not immediately come to their side, if you do not immediately uh bow the knee, if you do not immediately move the uh the all star game then and 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 why is there all this capitulation why why do, why is there all this capitulation because You don't want to deal with the flack. You don't want to deal with the stuff because they are relentless and they demand, they demand submission. So this is where we are right now. So we just had Easter. I I remember when there were editorials in the newspaper talking about the resurrection of Christ. I remember those days. I remember... um, In Los Angeles, at the Hollywood Bowl, that great massive amphitheater, they would have an Easter sunrise service every year. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and all over Los Angeles, all over California, all over every state in the United States. On Easter, there were these uh, Easter sunrise services. You'd see editorials in the paper. If you get Jim Denison's newsletter, which comes out every morning, he does a masterful job of taking the news and then uh, tying it in with biblical perspective. He must get up at 3 a.m. because he writes these every morning, Monday through Friday. Um, He should have been a milkman in the old days because, I mean, (laughs) this guy gets up early. Uh, But Denison does some great stuff. Here's what he wrote this morning. Uh, the headline, the Los Angeles Times publishes Easter articles attacking Easter faith. That's what they did on Good Friday. That's what they did on Easter Sunday. So he writes, the LA Times ran an op-ed for Easter Sunday titled, How Christians Came to Believe in Heaven, Hell, and the Immortal Soul. Well, how would you come to believe that? Well, because they read the Bible. Oh, no, no, that's not quite right. Written by Bart Ehrman, when you hear the name Bart Ehrman, you want to run. Uh, As Randy Alcorn has said, uh, Ehrman has turned more young people away from the Christian faith than anyone else in this generation. Professor at University of North Carolina, former student at Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, went to Princeton Seminary and lost his faith. And he pretty much thinks he is the ultimate authority on everything, having to do with scripture. But you read an analysis of his writings and his many, many books. He's very glib. He's very articulate. Uh, he's a great debater. He's a good writer, excellent writer. But what he does is he takes arguments that were made 100, 200 years ago, and he just kind of... You see those car shows on TV where they'll take a 32 Ford Coupe and they'll refurbish it. That's what he does. And so they always go to Ehrman. He's the go-to guy. Written by Bart Ehrman, one of the most notorious anti-Christian critics in contemporary culture, it is an astonishingly false portrait of Judeo-Christian faith in history. In the LA Times on Easter Sunday. The book on which the essay is based has already been soundly debunked. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who is a great theologian, longtime friend, uh, just exposes him in a very gracious way, but he does expose him. The book in which the essay has already been soundly debunked, it has been soundly debunked, but many who read Ehrman's Easter article may nonetheless be persuaded by the falsehood it perpetrates. So that was on Easter Sunday, but on Good Friday there was another editorial against Christianity. This is where we are. We're seeing attacks we wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago, but they're coming, they're coming more frequently, they're not going to stop. It's Nehemiah 6. So we just say, okay Lord, here we go. This is new turf and it's new territory, but we're trusting in you, and uh, this is what the early church went through and we're going to get a taste of it but you'll be faithful so you've got the scheme of subterfuge and I want to point out not only his response that we read in verse 3 I sent messengers to them saying I'm doing a great work I cannot come down why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you He he just he says yeah I'm not going to do this guys and whenever I have talked with friends over the years that have been in a situation, they say, how do I respond to this? Don't do it. Don't waste your time. I'm doing, I'm doing an important work, and I cannot come down. Because you are doing an important work. And this is a scheme of the enemy to divert you from your work and to divert you from your task and put yourself in the position of trying to defend you with people that, no matter what you say, have no interest in the truth. So just make the statement and then lead them to the Lord. And if you need to get legal help, get legal help and let them take care of it. But don't get into a running dialogue. It's just an absolute waste of time and energy. But these guys were relentless. Look at verse 4. They sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them the same way. So now they try a different tact. Which is the scheme of slander, or what we would call modern journalism. <laughs> Verses five through nine. I'm telling you, this is as relevant, it's astonishing how relevant this is. This entire book, this entire chapter. Now they're gonna go after him in the media. Verse five. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. We haven't seen this before. So now you've got an open letter. It's for everyone to read. It's posted in the Old Testament equivalent of being online. Everybody in the world can read this letter. And here's the contents, verse 6. In it was written... It is reported among the nations. That's mainstream media right there. So um, I have a friend named Bruce Nigren, and uh, retired editor of a number of Christian books. Sharp guy, good friend. He, uh, he was a journalism major in college. Now, Bruce is uh, 75, 76. And uh, we just worked together on a project. It'll take a few each year. But uh, he was a journalism major. When I was in college, I was a speech major. I also took some courses in journalism. And journalism used to be an honorable profession. And when you would take journalism, you would learn about the five interrogatives, the five questions. Who, what, when, where, how, and sometimes the sixth one, why? And that's what journalists did. They would ask those questions. Those questions aren't asked anymore at all. You'll never hear them ask at a, you, you watch a press conference? They're not asked. There is statements of accusation. There are statements of false evidence, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's slander. It's slander. The idea of slander in scripture actually is is devil speech, devil talk. Um, And once again, these false accusations are made It is reported among the, in other words, when they say it is reported, they have no sources. See, the other thing in journalism, you used to have, if you watch that movie on Watergate, all the president's men. So the editor of the Washington Post was Ben Bradley, and a lot of that movie is, you gotta have sources. You gotta have sources, and they gotta be collaborated by at least two. That, That was the structure of journalism. That's how things worked. No more, forget that, forget it. All you need to say is, It is reported. It has been said. It's just anonymous sources. I mean, it could be your girlfriend. It could be your own imagination. But here we see it back in Nehemiah's day. And here's the slander. Here's the scheme coming after him. It is reported among the nations. And Gashmu, whoever Gashmu is says that you and the Jews, watch this, are planning to rebel, therefore you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to those reports. What reports? The unsubstantiated reports, the rumors. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports, so come now, let us take counsel together. This whole thing is a fabrication. There's There's not a shred of truth to it it's an open letter, everybody's reading, everybody's aware of it. And they're going to report it to the king. The reason reason Nehemiah is building this wall is he's going to be king. This is a coup. He had no interest in being king. It wasn't a coup. Note uh, in verse 8 his response. And this, all right, so once again, here's a way you can respond when you're falsely accused. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, you stupid idiot. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He was measured. He kept us cool. He was calm. Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. There you go. They didn't want it finished. That's what's really going on. The subterfuge is revealed. But now he prays, oh God, strengthen our hands. When you're doing a task for the Lord, when the Lord's called you to do something and and you're doing it, you can expect opposition. You can expect these schemes. You can expect that the devil will do whatever he can do um, to discourage you, to deflate you, to make you hopeless. If you're responding to all these attacks all the time, what it does is, it takes your emotional energy, you get exhausted, you're thinking what they're gonna do next, how you're gonna reply next, and all your energy is poured into this, energy that should be poured into the work that you've been called to do. So there's gotta be some mental discipline and there's going to be a trust moving ahead in the Lord that you're doing his work and that the Lord will fight for us. They're not done yet. There's another scheme. This would be our fourth point. The scheme of of sin. So if they can't get him with subterfuge and they can't get him with slander, now there's a whole new tact in verses 10 through 14. Uh, And 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 this kind of comes out of nowhere, and we don't have a lot of context on it, but he enters the house of this guy named Shemaiah. Look at verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple We'll come back to that. And let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. Now, what's this all about? Why did he go to see this guy? We don't know the background, but he went to his home to see him. The guy is apparently confined in some way, shape, or form, is passing himself off as a man of God, as a God-fearing man, as Nehemiah would be, Let us team together. I'm sort of in the same boat you are. Let us team together and let us uh, go into the house of God. Let us go in within, within the temple. Because uh, they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you at night. Same thing, they're after you. They're going to do evil. Now look at his response in verse 11. But I said, should a man like me flee... And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Verse 12. Why would he not go in? Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. This guy's a false prophet. This guy's a con man. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired he was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. So here is the scheme to commit sin. But Nehemiah had the discernment to pick up this guy was a false teacher. Um how did he do that? How did he know the guy was a false teacher? Because he knew the scriptures. You say, what do you mean he knew the scriptures? Well, he knew, here's one verse in particular, he knew Numbers 3.10, that the only ones who could go inside the temple into the sanctuary were priests. He was not a priest. There was a king prior to Nehemiah, years and years before, named Uzziah, who got so angry and so full of himself that he went into the temple and the priest told him to get out and he refused to get out and God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life he thought he was above the law but see Nehemiah knew the word of God so we're living in days of great deception there are a lot of false teachers Jesus indicated in the last days there would be a great falling away. There'd be a great deception. How do you how do you uh, how do you discern? How do you know the difference between truth and error? How do you know the difference between uh, what's true and what isn't? Well, as we all know, you just look inside yourself. You just um, you just follow your heart as it says in the Old Testament in Hallmark 4, verse 32. Everything on the Hallmark Channel, and I watch it 10 to 12 hours a day. Everything I've ever seen on the Hallmark Channel, their basic core belief is, follow your heart. The heart is desperately sick and wicked the Bible says. Who can know it? That's the condition of the heart without Christ. And even after we come to know Christ, we have sin nature. Um, We live in a culture that's all about living off feelings. Uh, Michael Youssef has got a new book out that's really good called Hope for This Present Crisis. Uh, He talks about the condition of the evangelical church. And he writes this The Barna Group has conducted nationwide surveys showing that worldly anti Christian beliefs have profoundly infected the Christian community. Reporting on a 2017 study conducted for Summit Ministries, Barna researchers wrote We live in a world of competing ideas and worldviews. In an increasing globalized and interconnected world, Christians are more aware of and influenced by disparate views more than ever. But just how much have other worldviews crept into Christians' perspectives? Barnard's research shows that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly actually have a biblical worldview. 17%. Now, there are a lot of professing Christians. And Yusuf asked the question, how can this be? Are we becoming a post-truth church in the 21st century? An after-truth church? Yeah, we are. How is it possible that only 70% of serious Christians look at the world through the lens of God's Word? 17%! Barna Group researchers went on to explain the definition of a biblical worldview, and these people fit this category. This This is astonishing. So listen to how they define themselves. The Barna Group defines biblical worldview as believing that absolute moral truth exists, The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely a symbolic person, uh, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good and do good works. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Of the people who believe that, 17% have a biblical worldview, although they espouse it. But it's not how they live. How do they live? They run off feelings, like most of the culture. He goes on and talks about John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the president, who, as you may know, was killed in a plane crash in 1999. He was 38 years old. He was on his way with his wife and a friend to a wedding. Uh, he had traveled this route to Martha Vineyard many, many times. Yusuf says uh, he, was only, he had flown this route many times, but he was only halfway through his instrument training course, and he had rarely flown at night. This was a moonless night, and a thick haze hid the shore lights. Kennedy could not see the horizon. The mind and senses can be fooled by the motion of the plane, especially in the dark of night. An airplane's instruments, when properly calibrated, tell us the objective truth. They show whether an airplane is climbing, descending, or flying level. A pilot who trusts the objective truth of his instruments cannot go wrong. But a pilot who trusts his feelings is likely to slip into what pilots call the graveyard spiral. A mere 20 miles from his destination, John F. Kennedy Jr. began to doubt his instruments, and he started to trust his feelings. Airport radar showed that his plane was on course for the airstrip, but for some inexplicable reason. He made two turns that took him away from the landing site. Those those turns tipped the plane into a graveyard spiral, and the aircraft crashed into the sea, killing everyone. Instead of following the objective truth, he went with his feelings. That's our culture. That's many Christians. So how do we discern between good and evil? How do you get discernment like Nehemiah had so that he could figure out what was going on? Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is a key verse for us right now as believers in this culture because the pressure is great to uh, compromise. The, the, the pressure is great because the, the truth of the Bible is mocked, it's scorned, it's ridiculed. We have a whole group of Christians that call themselves progressive Christians. Progressive Christians don't believe the Bible, they edit the Bible. Thomas Jefferson edited his own Bible. He took out portions he didn't like. I don't like that. And so he had a much smaller Bible. You have a lot of Christians. I'm not going to actually do this. I should have brought an old Bible with me. They rip pages out of the Bible. And they say they're committed to Christ. They're not committed to Christ. They're committed to themselves, and they are over Christ. Their own intellect is over Christ and the wisdom of God. Hebrews 5 says this, verse 12 For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Who is it that drinks milk and not solid food? Infants, it's babies. You guys are a bunch of babies. I don't care. You've been a believer, what, 25 years. Well, you're still breastfeeding. You're an infant. You're still on the bottle. You're still on formula. You're a baby. Look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk, watch this, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. He never reads the Bible. He never studies the Bible. He goes with his feelings. If they shift at work, he shifts. If something is unpopular in the culture, he doesn't want to take the heat, so he capitulates. 14, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, watch this, because of practice, practice what? In the words, have their senses trained to discern good. And evil. You're at Bible study. Why are you at Bible study? You want to grow in your faith. You want to become more mature. You don't want to be stagnant. And you want to be a man of God in this culture. You want to be a God-fearing man. And evil is coming at us like a tsunami. And you have to be able to discern between good and evil. So you're at Bible study. And you're in a Bible teaching church and you got got your Bible, and you're taking your notes, and you're, you're Lord, teach me. If, if you follow the Lord, and you're serious, just know this, you're going to get opposition, as Nehemiah got opposition. You're going to get flack. And increasingly, it's coming within, more and more, your own family because there is a younger generation coming up who tends to see things differently, who tends to have a very high view of themselves. Most of their information about truth, quote unquote, about life, about wisdom, comes not from the scripture, but from the world system. Uh, Second Corinthians one verse 10 says, God delivered us from so great a peril of death and he will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So there are all these schemes against Nehemiah. You're going to run into schemes. You've already run into them. There'll be more schemes. They'll probably be more intense, and there'll probably be more consequences. But you see, our trust is in the Lord. We're following him. He's my Savior. He'll just deliver you Until you take your last breath, and then he delivers you into his presence. That's the hope of eternal life. It's the gospel. Notice to end this our last point, verses 15 and 16, in the midst of all this all, all this opposition and scheming, note Nehemiah's success and victory. Verse 15, back in Nehemiah. They get it. They get it done. And after at least 90 years, and actually longer than that, we read in verse 15, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. But if you read the following three verses, you will read that the attacks continued to come. And that's okay. God gave success. The task was completed. God received the glory. Um, There are going to be attacks and there's going to be opposition until we go to be with the Lord. In Psalm 57 2, and I'll close with this. David is surrounded by Saul's men who are trying to kill him. If you ever get a chance to go to the Red uh, to Israel, you go down by the Dead Sea, and hopefully they'll take you to En Gedi, just west of the Dead Sea, out of the desert, going up the hills, and there is a uh, very steep, very steep and narrow canyon, with a beautiful river flowing. Just a free, clear, beautiful river. And you can make your way through this very narrow and tight canyon. Boulders, rock badgers everywhere. And those steep walls are full of caves. Hundreds and hundreds of caves everywhere. That's where David was. And Saul's men are around him. They're trying to kill him. He's on the run. He's burrowed into one of those caves pulled some bushes, and there are a lot of caves. That's why they couldn't find him. But that's the context, and David prays, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, in verse 1. My soul takes refuge in you. You've made promises to me, Lord. You said I'd be king one day. He knew what God had promised him. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Get these guys out of here, Lord. Watch this. I will cry to God most high. You know who's against him? The most powerful man in Israel. No one was higher than Saul. Who's against you? Some political figure? Somebody at work? Someone with a lot of money? A government bureaucracy? Yeah, they're intimidating. Well, they may be high. He's most high. Don't ever forget that. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. What an amazing statement. As one old Puritan pastor put it, I will cry to God Most High, to God who is the transactor of all my affairs. I love that. All your affairs. He will send from heaven and save me. See, that's the thing about the Lord. He just keeps on saving he just keeps on saying. You're facing health issues. You're facing loss of memory issues. How i going to go through this, how am i going to handle it. What about my family? What about my wife? What about this? What about my finances? What about you're a younger guy? What about my future? What about my career? What if I take a stand at work? What if I lose my job? What if, I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. I remember the day I was let go. They told me I was done at a church. And it was, I was hanging by a thread for two years. And I said, Lord, just let me finish this Point Man manuscript before they have me leave. And three weeks after I finished it, I got a call. We want you to leave. And I'm thinking that morning, how are we going to make it? I mean, we had enough to make it through the month. I don't know how we're going to make it. I don't know how we're going to make it. Mary took the kids off to drop them off at school or an orphanage. I don't know what she was doing. <laughs> I didn't know how we were going to make it. I just had little kids. And I'm walking our subdivision in the streets. Nobody's out there. And I'm just walking, and I'm quoting this verse, and I said, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I have, I, I, I've made no contacts. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how we're going to make it. And I, for about an hour, I'm just walking around and talking to the Lord i got to get back to the house because Mary's coming back. I'm pouring out my heart. I get back. I mean, I'm freaked. I'm freaked. We'd moved halfway across the country. and This whole thing fell apart. i got the manuscript done. What, what, what do I do next, Lord? How am I going to make a living? How am I going to pay for it? Can't even pay for a move. Walk back. Mary's pulling in. Walk into the house. The phone rings. Hey, Steve. Yeah, this is da-da-da, the attorney. Remember me? You contacted me three years ago and Mary was in that accident, and it was the other guy's fault? Oh, yeah, how you doing? He said, I'm great. Hey, I'm sorry this has taken so long, but uh, I got a settlement for you. (laughs) A settlement. Yeah. Yeah, we got a settlement for you. Sorry it's taken so long. Here's the deal. You need to sign this by noon tomorrow. I said, really? I said, does it cover the 5000 6000 medical bills? He said, it's for $24,000. But I need your signature and Mary's signature by noon tomorrow. We'll be there. <laughs> and the next day, I was without a job, and I had more money in the bank than I'd ever had in my entire life. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me, who is the transactor of all my affairs, he will send from heaven and save me. And he's not done yet. So we commit ourselves to you, our Father, through Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.